Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Good evening and welcome to another edition of Radio Islam. I'm your host, Tariq El Amin. Well, Happy New Year. I know we are three days in, but I'm still going to say it. Happy New Year, Radio Islam family. For those of you who are new to Radio Islam, welcome. We're a live call-in talk show broadcasting from Chicago on WCEV 1450 AM. And you can listen to us on our live stream at www.wcev1450.com. Uh, and also check us out on the TuneIn app at WCEV. Now, folks, Evan, if you have not already done so, keep up with us, with us on social media by following and liking us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Islam USA. That's at Radio Islam USA. Now, if you have a comment or question you'd like to pose throughout the course of tonight's show, uh, we'd love to hear from you at 312-750-1178. That's 312-750-1178. Radio Islam family, it is 2018. I uh, just want to mention again that we've got some new things in store for you in 2018. Uh, the first of which is our book club. Uh, so the first book that we're going to be reading uh, this month is uh, the autobiography of Malcolm X, as told to uh, Alex Haley. Uh, actually, there is a link to uh, there's a link to the book. If you don't have it, if you want to put it in your library, there's a link to it on our Facebook page. Uh, that's at Radio Islam USA uh, at the end of the month. So we're scheduled to have our in-studio discussion about the book. Uh, that's going to be on the last Friday of the month. I believe that's January 26th. And we welcome your input. Uh, you can uh, start that conversation with us, if you like, on our Facebook page uh, or tweet us. Uh, but we are looking forward to a robust uh, discussion about uh, the life of one of the uh, most popular um, American Muslims. Uh, so uh, we're definitely looking forward to that. And then also there is a new weekly segment that we have added, and that is our jobs report with Chicago's Urban League, and uh, we'll be talking weekly with our uh, with an employment specialist, uh, Kimberly Pearson, Miss Kimberly Pearson, over at the Chicago Urban League, and they're going to be alerting us to uh, resources, job opportunities, and programs that are available to Chicago area residents who are looking for employment or to improve their employment or just to sharpen their skills, uh, interviews, uh, interview, um, interviewing skills, resume writing, and things of that nature. So those are two things that we've added on uh, this year. And uh, inshallah, with God's permission, we're looking forward to 2018 being a productive year for, for all of us uh, in this uh, Radio Islam family. So there, um, after saying that, I want to just talk a minute about uh, something that many of us saw in the news recently. Uh, and that was uh, the death of a 28-year-old father, uh, a father of two. Uh, and it was related to a false police report that was that was given, um, whereby the uh, Wichita State Police—not uh, I don't know if there's a state police, but the Wichita, Wichita Police Department, uh, their SWAT uh, department—they responded, and uh, this uh, young man's life uh, was ended uh, as a result of that response. So before we talk about it, I just want to play just a quick clip. Uh, that aired on the news 
uh, I believe it was yesterday, and then we're going to have a little bit of a conversation about it. So uh, once again, before the, before you play that clip, if you would like to make a comment, um, feel free to give us a call at 312-750-1178. That's 312-750-1178. We're going to go ahead and take a listen to that clip. We have some new developments for you following an online gaming dispute uh, that went way too far. Yeah. Police have arrested a 25-year-old man in Los Angeles for an alleged deadly swatting hoax between two gamers. Swatting is something that's really gained traction with online gamers. And here's what it is. Someone makes a prank call to police with a false report of some sort of ongoing crime. It could be anything. The hopes are to draw officers to a particular address, an address that perhaps of somebody that they think They're playing has done them with. wrong. Yes. yes. So, but in this case, the suspect in Los Angeles allegedly called police in Kansas and told dispatchers he shot his father and was holding his mother and a sibling hostage. I'm just pointing the gun at them, making sure they stay in the closet, my mom and my little brother. Okay, is there any way you can put the gun up? No. Are you guys sending someone over here? Because then I'm definitely not going to put it away. Okay, I'm just going to go ahead and stay on the phone with you, okay? That's fine. Until they get here, or? As long as you need me to, okay? Yeah, I'm thinking about, because um, I already poured gasoline all over the house. I might just set it on fire. Okay, well, we don't need to do that, okay? In a little bit, I might. All right, so police showed up at this house in Kansas, surrounded the house. But when 28-year-old Andrew Finch came to the door, and police say he moved suddenly, an officer fired a shot. Finch did not have a weapon, and he had nothing to do with this online gaming dispute. Remember, this was an address that had no one who was involved in the game lived there. Well, now his family, outraged understandably. Reporter Angela Monroe from our affiliate KWCH has more. Andrew Finch's family is angry. He was shot by a Wichita police officer as they responded to a call on false information. They did not warn him. They did not say anything to him. He opened the door and they shot him. Andrew Finch's mother was in the house when her son was shot. We sat with her as she watched the conference and disagreed with parts of what they said. And I'm not letting go until I have justice. Lisa Finch says her son was never given a chance before police shot him. This is his blood. They were given the story that there were hostages being held here and that people were in here dead. It was a swatting call, a false call meant to bring SWAT to a scene, all because of a video game dispute that had nothing to do with Finch. The family has a message for whoever made that call, too. You're a murderer and you're an accomplice and you killed a wonderful man. We have, this whole family has lost a wonderful person because of your selfish Finch had two young children, and we're told he was all about his family. Um, I would like them to remember that he was, he was very loyal, um, he was faithful, um, and he was caring. The Finch family continues to want answers after the unarmed man was shot by police on a bogus call. Uh, Radio Slam family, that's, I mean, it's extremely, it's extremely disturbing um, to, to hear that. Uh, and to reiterate... This idea, idea of swatting, which uh, myself, which I'm sure many of you, this is the first time that you may have uh, heard of this term. 
uh, but I had to I had to look it up, and this is actually something that uh, obviously that that takes place. So swatting, uh, as it was as it was referenced uh, uh, throughout that clip, I say it's the harassment. It's a harassment tactic of deceiving an emergency service um, through a hoax um, uh, into sending a police. Uh, an emergency res- or service response team to another person's address. So this is triggered by false reporting of a serious law enforcement emergency, such as a bomb threat, murder, hostage situation, or other alleged incident. Uh, this term derives from the law enforcement unit SWAT, Special Weapons and Tactics, uh, which many of us know we recognize as a specialized type of police unit uh, in the United States and many other countries which armed themselves with military-style equipment such as door breaching weapons, uh, submachine guns, automatic rifles, uh, and other equipment. Uh, The threat may result in the evacuation of schools, businesses, um, uh, entire neighborhoods. Uh, Swatting is described as terrorism due to the potential to cause disruption, uh, and it wastes resources and time of emergency services uh, that are needed often in other places. Um, it causes money and tax dollars to be wasted by the city or county when responding to a false report of a serious law enforcement emergency. And making false reports to emergency services is a criminal offense in many countries, punishable by fines and imprisonment. Uh, In California, for uh, example, swatters bear the full cost of the response, which can range up to $10,000. I had a question. Yeah, go right here. Uh, so I didn't understand the part of the story where, uh, like, what did it have to do with the game that the, they were playing some, the, the people who made the call, they were playing some video game or something right. like that. But I didn't understand what the actual call had to do with their dispute. Um, as I understand it, I believe they were playing either a game like Call of Duty or Call of Duty uh, specifically. Mm-hmm. And um, with online gaming, you know, you could be playing folks from around the world. Uh, I remember in my time, I haven't played, you know, in, in years, but uh, I played with guys from the UK and Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, but through the course of that dispute, this is how they, this is how, you know, some people are, are, are remedying those disputes. Basically, they're lashing out and they're using, uh, they're using law enforcement where they think the person that they have an issue with. Okay. That, and and they are calling sense. people so to they were actually, to the house. So they thought they were sending the SWAT team to, like, their rival gamer. Right. But it ended up being someone completely uninvolved. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and, and the thing is, and if you heard, I don't know if it was played in that clip or not, but uh, his mother said he was not even a gamer. He, he didn't even play games. So that makes it uh, that much more uh, troubling uh, and just tragic the fact that this is somebody who was outside, you know, the periphery of this uh, of this community, this gaming community. Uh, my question is, how is this a prank? All right. Making a false report to police to initiate a police response over a video game dispute. Uh, this is a clear sign that a segment of our society, uh, no matter how small that segment is, uh, it shows that they have become unhinged from reality. Uh, an innocent man's life was taken, right? So this, this isn't a game. His children are going to grow up without a father. His family is deprived 
uh, of his presence, you know, as a brother, as a, as a son, cousin, whatever. And unfortunately, it's in these types of situations where we want to review. I shouldn't say unfortunately, right? We should always be looking to review, um, you know, to see how we respond. But these types of situations, we are going to review how police respond. Uh, and we're going to want to dissect and second guess what they did and how they did it. But I'm going to reserve criticism for a couple of reasons. Uh, number one, uh, outside of notwithstanding, well, no, I should say withstanding my uh, critique, my criticism of not necessarily of the of policing as a system, not looking at, at them as individuals, but but the critique of uh, the, the, our police departments, the way they function uh, systemically, uh, I'm going to say that the great majority of police officers serve uh, with distinction and with a spirit of, uh, of service and uh, responsibility for the communities that they serve in. I believe that the great majority of them, uh, th- that they do operate from that standpoint. Um, so like I said, despite my criticism of the interactions uh, systemically that play out on the individual levels with black and brown communities and impoverished communities, uh, the system itself, I believe, it is broken. But this is not the same thing, right, in my, my estimation. If you see differently, give us a call at 312-750-1178. But I believe that this is a, a special type of a situation, right? This is generally these are specialized units responding to situations that many of us never, God willing, inshallah, will never encounter, right? They respond, these officers, these units, these, these SWAT um, units, they respond with the faith that the information that they've been given is accurate and that the threat is real. And possibly the lives they've come to save may not have time on their side, right? So, but I'm going to mention this. What I do hope happens is that the Wichita Police Department will be transparent in their assessment uh, and in their reporting about what happened. Now, the, uh, the the young man's mother, she made a plea. She she talked about how he wasn't given uh, any notice. Um, and of course, we also had the benefit of listening to the nine one uh, to the emergency call, uh, and to you know it painted a picture. Uh, a, a kind of a, a picture of urgency, right? And I'm sure that that information was, was transmitted to the responding officers, but still that does not negate this mother's uh, cry, her plea for, for, for some transparency to, to find out exactly what happened, to understand why they responded in the way that they did. So I had another question, I guess, since you have a little bit of law enforcement experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so when the SWAT team goes to a location like that, are these officers, are they basically, are they quote-unquote like regular officers who are putting on gear and getting into a like special mode? Or are these a whole separate set of officers that don't even uh, interact with, you know, like, like street stuff? Well, generally, your SWAT, uh, and, and from what I'm, what, I'm, what I'm seeing here, I don't think this was SWAT. Uh, okay. That responded. I'm, I'm, I'm not certain on that. I didn't get the uh, impression that they did. But generally, your SWAT are going to be a, a much more highly trained um, unit 
Uh, they're not your your beat officer that's walking around. Right. Uh, they've got more uh, extensive uh, training. They've gone through scenarios, um, bomb threats, hostage situations, uh, natural. Well, most law enforcement or uh, emergency response, they're going to go through natural disaster uh, response. But they are definitely a much more highly trained and and uh, and highly armed uh, group than your normal beat officer. So they're not expecting to go through that same process that an officer would of like you know a certain set of procedures like demanding the people to drop the weapon and get down on their knees. I mean, it's going to be a slightly different procedure, probably. Is that safe to say? Uh, I think that might. Uh, yeah, that they, I'm sure there are different protocols, right? I mean, I never served in SWAT. My mm-hmm. my law enforcement experience was. Um, in uh, in corrections, uh, and you know that's its own, you know its own realm. Um, but my familiarity just is is in the base of I know that there are protocols, there are procedures for how uh, folks are going to respond, and even in corrections we had a specialized response unit as well. Um, so I think what this is going to do is that this is going to cause there's going to be a, a reexamination of how you incorporate this new variable of swatting into into, into responses mm-hmm. um, and how that's going to look uh, I, I'm not I'm not really I don't know if I'm really all that optimistic about because it, it, it kind of feels like you know the story of the little boy who cried wolf yeah uh, and if that's in a responding officer's mind that this could be, you know, it could be a hoax. But at the same time, every police officer, uh, every uh, every officer that, that that I know, the the idea is, you know, you, you're trying to make it back home uh, in one piece. So that doesn't take that away, but it it's not a it's not a good position to be in. Yeah, the story, I guess. Brings, brings up a couple of questions like the mother of the victim said mm-hmm. she's like why didn't they say anything why didn't they tell him to s- stop or you know anything like that why didn't they give a warning right the point you brought up is also a very valid point though that these are officers they're not res- they're, they're kind of taking it for granted that all the the information that they've received is correct right so they're going there and perceiving this as kind of the worst threat possible exactly you know so they just went up there and just dropped them as soon as they could. Right. Um, so is, is that really their fault for basically believing the information that they were given? Um, seems not, right? But at the same time, the mother has a point. Like maybe they, at least they could have said something like, "Hey, get down on your knees" or something like that. Right. Um, so we don't. And at the same time, uh, I think she said the police department itself is telling a different story than what she is saying. Um, so, yeah, really complicated and a lot of long-term implications for, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And what concerns me probably more than anything with the climate of uh, community and uh, police relations um, is that, well, and it, it doesn't exist the same in all communities, right? But I'm going to make a general statement that these relationships are strained. And a lot, a lot of that is due to a lack of transparency and responsiveness. Uh, when people are looking for answers, uh, and instead what they're getting is they're getting justifications and they're getting what people feel like, you know, they, they feel like they're getting cover-ups or runarounds. Um, but there's, 
and I know we're in a we're in a, we're in a litigious society, right? Everybody, obviously, I'm pretty sure there's going to be a settlement that comes out of this, and rightfully so, right? This 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 man uh, should not uh, have lost his life, but I see two outcomes. One is, uh, as I said, that they're going to have to incorporate this as a variable. Police departments across the country, uh, they're going to have to incorporate the idea that the information that they're given may or may not be credible, mm-hmm. uh, and. And that's going to change the way they respond. And whether that be that it causes them to wait a little bit longer, in which case that person that they could have saved may wind up being the person who, who suffers. Uh, and on the other side, it, it's, going to be, uh, it's going to be that the fines, uh, the penalties for people who engage in this type of practice, that they're going to have to be amped up to the point where you know, a fine or you may be, you know, in prison, that that's not even, it's not even discussion. Yes, you're going to be fine. And yes, you're going to be in prison. And I mean, I don't say that lightly considering the U.S. has more people incarcerated than anybody else. Uh, But in this type of situation, that's a person who needs a serious prison sentence uh, as a punishment and as as a deterrent to the next idiot uh, who thinks that that's okay because they got mad uh, in Call of Duty. Yeah. Um, one more thing to kind of put it in context, this yeah. latest tragedy. I think it was a couple of weeks ago, like about two weeks ago. I actually read it on the news brief mm-hmm. for the show. Um, it's a big story about a man in, uh, I think it was Arizona. Mm-hmm. He got shot by a police officer. He was doing something stupid, you know. I think they said he was, like, shooting a BB gun or something like that in a hotel, mm-hmm. right? But there's a video, there's a graphic video of the police officer really, like, yelling at him, telling him to get down on his hand. And the police, you can tell the police officer himself is, like, confused as far as the procedure. He doesn't know the the correct procedure, the correct protocol. Right. So when, when this man is literally crawling on his hands and knees towards the officer... The officer opens fire on him and he dies. What? Yeah, this was like a couple of weeks ago. Okay, big I'll story. Look, I have to look at that. That that doesn't make any sense. Uh, just to hear that account, yeah, it's really crazy. But but that's kind of the backdrop here as well. That's pretty recent. Uh, yeah, we're we're in a, we're definitely in a time. These are gonna have implications, like I said, for how police departments respond to these types of situations. Okay, Radio Slime family. Um, we are going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to be joined by Dr. Lubna Hussein. Uh, she recently returned from Bangladesh, where she was, uh, where she treated, uh, gave medical attention to uh, Rohingya refugees. Uh, you're listening to Radio Islam on WCB 1450 AM. We'll be right back. help getting around, I became his driver. Soon enough, it was up to me to be his housekeeper and financial manager, too. When he moved in, I became his cook and even his nurse. But no matter what roles I play, I know I'm still his daughter. We understand the roles you play. So to help, we created aarp.org caregiving, where you can connect with experts and other caregivers. Visit aarp.org caregiving. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Would your business survive a disaster? Nearly two-thirds of businesses aren't prepared for an emergency. 
and 40% of businesses that experience a disaster never recover. Make an emergency plan now before it's too late. For a free online tool that helps you develop an emergency plan to keep your business up and running should disaster strike, visit ready.gov forward slash business. Brought to you by the Federal Emergency Management Agency, the American Red Cross, and the Ad Council. Assalamu alaikum. SoundVision is starting a new initiative to provide crisis intervention to those in need. Through the crisis text line, anyone can text 741-741 and be connected via text to a trained crisis counselor who is there to listen and show empathy. The crisis text line is open to everyone. By texting the keyword SALAM, that's S-A-L-A-M, to 741-741, users will be connected to a trained Muslim counselor whenever available. You can also volunteer to undergo training and become a counselor. For more information, visit soundvision.com. Welcome back. Welcome back to Radio Islam. I'm your host, Tariq el If you haven't already done so, folks, if you are new to the Radio Islam family, take a moment to follow us on social media. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all at Radio Islam USA. That's at Radio Islam USA. If you've got a point or comment or question that you would like to make, uh, you want to pose during tonight's conversation, give us a call at 312-750-1178. That's 312-750-1178. We're going to go ahead and shift gears. We're going to talk with Dr. Lubna Hussein. She is a physician and an assistant professor of pediatrics at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas. Uh, She has a special interest in global health and medical relief to migrant populations. She was recently with the Med Global team on the Myanmar border in eastern Bangladesh. And we welcome her to Radio Islam. Assalamu alaikum, Dr. Lubna. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah. Thank you so much for having me, Brother Tarek. Oh, it is our pleasure. It is our pleasure. So, um, how long how long were you uh, were you there in um, uh, uh, working with the uh, the refugees? Yeah. Well, uh, first of all, Bismillah, Alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salam wa rasul. I really wanted to thank you for giving a voice to this issue because I do feel like it's something that cannot be addressed enough. I feel yes. that I came back with such a heavy burden mm-hmm. um, with the stories of the Rohingya people that I that I met with our brothers and sisters over there, and I feel that every time I can speak with someone about it, that burden gets a little bit lighter. So I thank you so much. Um, to answer your question, I was there for seven days. Okay. Um, I had received uh, an email just generally requesting physicians to join the MedGlobal team um, a couple months prior to my departure, um, and they had requested for me to come the first week of December. That's what they had a need for for pediatricians at the time, so I was able to join them for that first week. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, was this your first time working with MedGlobal? And, and if you could uh, give the Radio Slime family just kind of an, an idea uh, as to the scope of the work that MedGlobal does. Yeah, so it was my first time working with MedGlobal. I've done work with other relief organizations um, in the past. I've gone on medical missions. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the third major medical mission I've done. 
But MedGlobal was actually founded in August of 2017, so it's actually a very new uh, medical organization. Um, But the reason that I trusted it so much and I was so eager to sign up when I first heard about it was I actually worked with one of the um, board members uh, in Lesbos, Greece, Mm -hmm. uh, a couple years ago. And then I had been following um, Dr. Zahir and others, uh, Dr. John Kaler. Um, I'd been following their their travels, and I'd seen that they had gone into uh, Aleppo um, and, you know, didn't shy away from trying to take medical care, take top-level medical care mm-hmm. to areas in the world where that could that's something that could, just could not be accessed. So I kind of immediately fell in love with the idea of MedGlobal, and then um, I talked to some people who had come back from Bangladesh and um, become involved, and I decided to become involved with it. Um, so, uh, you know, that's kind of the mission of MedGlobal, to provide medical services to people who otherwise cannot even dream of accessing such level of medical care for them, for them, their children, for their families. Right. Well, I'll tell you, we've been following very closely the, uh, the, the, the condition of the Rohingya, our brothers and sisters there, uh, and the, the struggle that they're going through. Uh, And I have to say, just on a personal level, I'm just really filled with such a sense of uh, inspiration and pride when I see um, uh, brothers and sisters um, like yourself, um, Dr. Lubna, who have volunteered their their time, their skills and expertise to go out and try to make a difficult situation um, bearable. Um, How does this affect you as a Muslim? You know, Brother Tarek, I have to be honest, you know, I, you go there, you see these conditions, and you you start asking, like, how how can this be happening? And I actually remembered a lot, the ayah from Surah Baqarah, that when the angels asked, you know, are you going to, they asked Allah, are you going to create a creation on the earth that's going to spill blood, spill each other's blood and spread corruption? Right. And I witnessed that firsthand there, the monstrosity that human beings can be capable of committing. Um, you know, we're living in a world now where Buddhists have become violent, which, you know, I would have never imagined. Um, so I, you know, did ask those questions. I had those kind of shakes in my uh, face, but it's interesting, you know, speaking with the Rohingya directly and asking them, why did this happen to you? They say it's because we say la ilaha illallah. I, you know, had patients tell me that directly. And it just fortified my iman to see that they are still, they're some of the most grateful people that you'll ever come across. Um, They really taught me the meaning of alhamdulillah, because, you know, they'll come to the clinic, you give them just a little bit of medical attention, and they are so grateful. You know, they're just so thankful giving us their dua, and it's just that their reaction is what strengthened my iman. So I, you know, that's one aspect. The other thing I would have to say is, you know, as a Muslim, I'm looking at responders coming from the U.S., coming from Europe, uh, from European countries. We saw the Japanese Red Cross very involved, um, Norwegian, you know, just a bunch of European countries. But I did question where are the Muslim countries? You know, where are the responses from these countries that are competing with each other to build the tallest buildings in the world and, you know, some of the most, like, mind-blowing structures you'll ever see. Uh, and where is their response to the course of our people? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I had mixed emotions, but 
you know, I have to say that it's like a Lisplano Adelatata since we're a Bucca, that he knows what we don't know. And, you know, he has a plan. I mean, I mean. So um, you mentioned that the, the spirit of the Rohingya were mm-hmm. um, uh, those that, that you encountered. There was a, there was a sense of a sense of gratitude. Would you mm-hmm. would you describe that as the overall um, I mean, aside from the attitude, what is the what was the overall condition of the people? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a question. I think in the um, in one word, I can say it was harrowing to see. I had done my best to prepare myself before going. I had, of course, watched news stories on the situation, talked to people who have gone and come back. Um, but unfortunately, I found that I was completely could never have been prepared for what I saw. Um, when I arrived on my first clinical day, um, there was a line of about 100 patients waiting for us in the clinic. And the first thought I had was these people are all malnourished. Um, and many of them looked acutely ill. And my kind of uh, quick triage of the situation, a lot of the kids looked frighteningly ill um, and malnourished. I would uh, see a patient who I think I'm pretty good as a pediatrician to guess a patient's age, um, but I would put a baby on the table and think, okay, this baby's about six or seven months old, and I'd look at the chart, and this baby's 18 months old. And, you know, that's mm-hmm. something that took some getting used to. Um, every patient, we would measure their upper arm circumference, mid-upper arm circumference, which is kind of a WHO, the World Health Organization's way of measuring their nutritional, a quick way of measuring their nutritional status, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are ser- NGOs that are providing services for um, food and uh, especially for children there. So there are people who are doing um, a lot of good work, um, and MedGlobal, I think, is one of them. Um, the other thing I would say is, speaking to the gratitude, what they tell me the story, like we had, for example, one day the Physicians for Human Rights group come to our clinic and they were kind of asking us to send them patients for interview. So we had to ask them in depth their stories of how they were, how they had to flee. Um, And a lot of them would tell us that they were just, you know, having dinner, um, living comfortably uh, in Myanmar when armies would come in and announce that anyone who doesn't get up and leave is going to be killed. Um, they, they witnessed their neighbors being killed in front of them. They, neighbored, they witnessed neighbors being raped. Um, a lot of them witnessed their own family members being taken from them, um, young women um, and children, and just horrible, just unimaginable things happening. And so they just ran. They picked up their children, whatever they could, they, and they started running. Um, they ran through jungles, and in some situations they were near a mountain. They were trapped there. They had to then go through water that was at best chest deep, but a lot of them, and sometimes when the water was higher, would have to take boats across to arrive in Bangladesh. Um, and then when they arrived, they're given, basically they're given tarp and bamboo and told to build their own shelters. So, you know, this process of their fleeing, they told me anywhere, some said five days, some said eight days. And I heard one person tell me 15 days. It just depends on, you know, who's traveling with you and the capabilities um, that they have. So when they arrive to the shore, they're building their own kind of makeshift shelters. But I'll tell you one thing. I, I, we did get a chance to go into the middle of one of these camps called the Hakim Para Camp. Mm-hmm. And right in the heart of it, like right in the center of it, they've built a masjid. 
So that tells you something about, <clears throat> excuse me, something about the iman of these people. Mm-hmm. Hello. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. I'm yeah. Here. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, no um, it it really it gets me sometimes to think that people who have gone through such indescribable, you know, situations have still found a way, you, you know, to maintain their dignity. You know, there is something about. Uh, about this cruelty that that many of us don't see, uh, we hear about it, uh, and as you mentioned, you know, re- referencing Surah um, Bakara, uh, you know, uh, in the angel's response and about that, you know, bloodshed and being spread, um, and the other side of that is, uh, if it was not for that, it's not a justification, but it is, it is sort of just an observation. Uh, if it was not for these instances of that type of unimaginable unimaginable uh, cruelty and callousness, um, we really could not appreciate the, the, the mercy and compassion and the response of, uh, of, of, of people like yourselves, organizations like Matt Goble, uh, SAMS, uh, and other organizations that respond uh, to the conditions of people who find themselves victims um, you know, of, you know, of, of, of acts and circumstances well beyond their control. How did you, uh, and let me take you back to before you got there, uh, Dr. Lubna. Mm -hmm. How did you prepare yourself um, to, 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 you know, to to be in in that space? Yeah, that's a good question. I actually had done work prior in Lesbos, Greece, um, with the assisting Syrian uh, refugees there, um, as well as refugees from other countries coming in. Um, and then I had done another mission to the Saloniki, which was more of a stable situation in Greece. Um, so I did have some experience. Then I, you know, like I was mentioning, I was able to just kind of read up on the situation a little bit and speak to people who had come back from the region. Sure. Um, it's interesting when this inf- huge influx happened around August 25th. I was actually with my brother in Hajj. Um, in the last year in Mecca, and um, we got word of this, and, you know, he was uh, trying to respond, you know, in his, through political channels, and um, Imam Majid from the Adam Center area was there, too, and, you know, they were meeting with each other, and so, I mean, I had, we had, you know, made a lot of dua for them. Uh, I remember the Imam in the Haram making dua for them. Um, and then I think that's kind of what really sparked my interest in reading more about the Rohingya. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I say, nothing I could have read could have prepared me for what I saw when I got there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and let me ask uh, a, a different question from the, the lens uh, as, uh, as someone who teaches uh, aspiring physicians. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's funny because I was having a conversation with a, uh, a physician earlier today. We were just talking about the number um, being over a million in the U.S. Um, but as a professor uh, who teaches, how do you encourage or do you encourage your students to use their skills and knowledge in similar ways to yourself? Yeah, that's, uh, you know, a good question. I think that a lot of physicians, if they're not already involved in humanitarian efforts, Mm-hmm. would do so um, if their situation would allow. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
So what I try to remind my residents and students of more than anything is that compassion that first drew them to medicine. Um, I do think that uh, most people go into this profession with noble intentions. It's too hard to get through the training and, you know, the nights that we have to stay awake and be away from our families. It's too hard to do that for any reason other than compassion and a, a strong desire to be of assistance to humanity. So in a way, it's kind of in our blood. It's not hard to convince. I would say that maybe up to 80% of medical students would immediately say, yes, I'm interested in global health. I'm interested in um, doing medical relief work. But, you know, I mean, it, it just, what I try to do with my medical students and residents is to remind them of that compassion. And that could even be practiced here in the, you know, in the U.S. with every patient that you see. Um, a lot of people become involved in local organizations here in Dallas. We have uh, free health clinics at several of our massages. We have um, organizations that are providing free medical care to people with no health insurance. And I don't see that work as any different than what I did. You know, I basically got on a plane and did my job somewhere else. Mm. Um, but there are people who are doing continuous good more frequently just all the time. And, and that may be in a lot of ways better than, you know, kind of intermittently exerting effort to go and provide these services. So, you know, there's a Aya and Surah Isra, I think it's Aya 84, that which would translate to say that everyone acts according to their own um, predisposition or their own abilities. So, you know, I mean, that ability could be different for everyone. Medicine is a very wide field. You know, there are some people who have this strength of uh, working in emergency situations. Um, So I encourage people to kind of identify what it is about you that makes you unique or different or, you know, what skill can you provide? Um, For me, I've known pretty much from a young age that there's this thing that happens to me when I see an emergency situation that I develop a very tunnel-type vision. Mm -hmm. You know, it can be like a circus happening over here, and I wouldn't notice. I I become very focused in what I'm doing, in this task at hand. Mm -hmm. Um, And so for me, like emergency response is something that I am predisposed to. Um, and that's something that I have identified about myself, and that's where I think my forte is in providing that kind of aid. But there are others who, you know, maybe that wouldn't be the best place for them. You know, the best place for them may be working in a homeless shelter or, you know, just even providing compassionate care to every patient that you see and letting that be your guiding light, your motivating, your inspiration um, with every patient that you see and touch. So... Yeah, I mean, I, I hope that answered the question. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yes, thank you so much. Uh, let me ask one more question about, uh, about your time there. Um, and we, we've heard different accounts about what people have to go through to get to these, uh, to get to these uh, camps. Mm-hmm. Um, was there a particular age or gender that comprised uh, the majority of the refugee camp? Um, you know, I haven't seen a solid report telling me the percentage of the camps, but I can tell you that I think it was about 40% of the patients that we would see in clinic every day. I'm not sure if that is a true sample size mm-hmm. um, because, you know, of course, we were just seeing the acutely ill. Right. Um, but I, 
I would say maybe somewhere between 40 and 50 percent. I hope I'm not too off on that. Um, there are definitely other people who are more experts at uh, knowing these numbers. Um, but it was a large percentage. Um, and I would say the, mo- the majority of the patients that I saw as a pediatrician there would be under the age of five. Um, and I would see maybe like around 40 patients a day. Um, and I know that other providers in the clinic were seeing some of the kids that were less acutely ill, too. So, yeah, I mean, I think it was somewhere maybe between 40 and 50 percent, if I had to guess. But wow. these kids, um, you know, most of them were malnourished, as I mentioned. And one of the things that happens with malnutrition that we kind of forget here practicing in the West is that disease tends to just spread so quickly in their body. So when here we can see a child who has a common cold, for example, and really not worry about it. There, you know, this situation of like just a common viral infection can become life-threatening very quickly in a child who's that malnourished. So the percentage of bacterial secondary infections was very high. We were seeing cases of children suffering from diseases that we've long forgotten here in the West because of vaccinations. Um, so there we're still seeing measles and mumps and um, diphtheria spreading quite alarmingly. Um, I've heard up to 1,500 cases of diphtheria in the, as of mid-December, so that number must have increased by now. Um, and we're scrambling. We're scrambling to develop isolation centers, and there are some field hospitals. Uh, for example, the Red Crescent had an excellent field hospital. I would send patients and go round on them later, and I, you know, in speaking with the doctors practicing there, there were Norwegian doctors Mm-hmm. Um, that were practicing the same exact medica- medicines that we would do here um, or level of care that we would do here in the state. So I felt very confident with them. But to be honest, they were quite overwhelmed. Like a part of me wanted to stay overnight and help them because they were so overwhelmed. So the fact of the matter is there's so much more work that needs to be done acutely. Um, Med Global is working on establishing a field hospital, um, and I did want to spread that message, uh, if that's okay with Please you. Please do. Please do. That if anyone is able to help um, donate to Med Global, just go to medglobal.org um, and click on donate. Um, the funds right now that we're collecting for the Rohingya um, will be used in building a field hospital in advance care facility where, for example, we can admit children who may need IV um, hydration, IV antibiotics. I can say firsthand that I would see infants that were on the brink of death. Like, I was very, very worried about these kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I would um, send them by rickshaw to the Red Crescent Field Hospital and go see them as soon as I could after clinic. And, you know, my first question was, well, did they make it? And the doctors would say, you know, thankfully, alhamdulillah, that they did. But another child died today. And it's unfortunate because if these, ki- if these children had gotten to medical care like a day sooner, mm-hmm. they could have been saved with antibiotics and hydration. Wow. It's, wow. Yeah, it's an incredible need that we have. So I really implore anyone who, you know, can make a contribution to do that to medglobal.org. Medglobal.org. Uh, well, uh, Dr. Lubna, uh, I would just want to say um, just thank you for, for sharing uh, with us, and may Allah continue to bless you and all those who uh, give their time and their energy and their expertise uh, in the service of others. Um, and, uh, I mean, I hear it, I hear it in, your, in your voice, and, I mean, I'm affected by it. And um, 
you know, just may Allah continue to reward you for, for all that you've done. And um, I'm, I'm just really, really thankful to be able to talk to you. Thank you, Brother Tharik, and thank you again for giving a uh, voice to this very important issue um, and for the work that you're doing as well. Alhamdulillah. Uh, and last thing, if you send me, well, you know what, I'll, I'll make sure I add that link, uh, MedGlobal, is MedGlobal.org, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, That's so right. this uh, this live broadcast will be up as a podcast, uh, and I'll make sure I send that link to you, but when we put it up on our Facebook page, I'll also add that uh, link from MedGlobal there, so uh, the Radio Sound family can uh, can can support uh, the continued uh, good works of Met Global, inshallah. I would appreciate that. Thank you so much. All right, thank you. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam. All right, Radio Islam family. That was Dr. Lubna Hussein. Uh, she is a physician and assistant professor of pediatrics at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas. Uh, she recently returned uh, with the uh, from uh, Myanmar. Um, uh, well, from the Myanmar border uh, in eastern Bangladesh, uh, where she spent seven days uh, treating, uh, just treating the uh, Rohingya, uh, I guess a lot of youth. But uh, let's just make sure that we keep we keep her and we keep all those who are giving their time uh, in our prayers. Uh, you know, may Allah protect them and continue to bless them, to, uh, continue to serve. All right, so. We are at the close of another edition of Radio Islam. Uh, I remind you again about the uh, Radio Islam Book Club, a novel idea. Our first book is the autobiography of Malcolm X, as told to Alex Haley. Uh, there is a link if you'd like to purchase it. There's a link on our Facebook page. Uh, we're going to be having our first in-studio book discussion on J- Friday, January 26th. Uh, and we welcome you to join us in that. Uh, and with that being said... Our engineer over at WCEV is Leonard. Thank you very much, sir. Make sure we come through nice and clear for our listening audience. Our engineer in studio, the impressive one, Ibrahim Bey, uh, also uh, jumped on the mic for a minute. We had a nice little discussion that first half. Uh, I'm your host and producer, Tariq el Our executive producer is Abdul Malik Mujahid. Uh, the words, uh, views that have been expressed by the host and or guest are theirs and are to be taken as representative of Sound Vision, Inc. Radio Islam family, it's been a great hour. Look forward to talking to you tomorrow. We've got Zara J, who is the founder of the Black Muslim Singles Society. Looking forward to an interesting conversation on that. So make sure you tune in again tomorrow night at 6 p.m. And I think that's about it. So I'm going to leave you as I greeted you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you.